My name is Michelle Putnik. I'm the uh, worldwide business development lead for manufacturing at, uh, at AWS. It's a pleasure to, uh, to see all of you here today. I want to introduce um, also Elizabeth and uh, Caleb. Elizabeth from Coke Industries, Caleb from Invista, a company within the Coke Industries family um, who's going to talk about their amazing journey um, moving from BI to uh, to artificial intelligence, and I, I'm pretty sure you're going to be excited about um, their story and their learnings. As always, when in these leadership sessions, um, we try to have the voice of the customer be the most prominent one. So it's less about AWS; it's more about how customers are actually using um, our services, and uh, and also share some of the experiences, lessons learned, things to uh, to do, and things to maybe avoid. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there's a little bit of uh, element of that as well. Um, as always, when we do these presentations, there's a cutoff date for when you can make edits and changes, uh, and I'm sure you can appreciate that. So there's one slide that did not make it into, uh, into this presentation today. I'll talk about it a little bit. Um, so that's one. The other piece is these uh, sessions, when we have uh, these silent sessions, uh, do not allow for a Q&A, unfortunately. So tomorrow, uh, on level three here in the ARIA, we have the um, we have Invista for an hour between 11 and uh, 12. So if you want to ask questions uh, to Invista, uh, you're happy to do so uh, tomorrow at the manufacturing lounge. Um, so um, so they will be there to uh, to field those questions. If there are questions in the immediate aftermath. <laughs> You can certainly ask. Uh, we'll be outside and hang around the in the hallway, and you can ask questions as as much as you'd like as as well. Okay, so uh, let's get uh, let's get uh, started with uh, agenda. So what we're doing now is introductions, um, and then I'll just talk a little bit about what's new in uh, manufacturing as it pertains to uh, AWS. Uh, we've been busy this year, um, both in terms of uh, solving <laughs> solving for customer challenges. Um, but also hearing customers loud and clear in terms of what they need and what they want for you know from us, in order to get uh, get value uh, as manufacturing companies uh, using our services, and then I'll transition over to uh, to Invista, who's essentially going to walk us through uh, the rest of the uh, uh, agenda today. So, um, AWS for manufacturing. Um, first of all, if I kind of wind back the tape a little bit, maybe three years four years, five years, a lot of our customers um, were in the situation where they wanted to connect their products, whatever products they were making. Can I connect them? Can I make them smart? Can I start grabbing telemetry uh, from them? And of course, one critical element of that is um, that telemetry or that data stream needs to be, um, or that product needs to feed, uh, feed that data to a data center, preferably uh, within reasonable distance uh, in order not to, to introduce latency. So the scale of AWS certainly matters, not only when it comes to smart factory uh, challenges or opportunities, but it does so certainly in, smart, uh, in the smart product space. You have to be near where our customers' customers are in utilizing the equipment that they manufacture or the products that they sell. Uh, so the scale is, uh, is, is a critical uh, for us. Um, what not everyone knows as much about is um, how Amazon, and therefore AWS, thinks about or uses 
um, a lot of the you know, manufacturing uh, technologies, certainly around automation, both from a hardware and software perspective. Um, but our operation, or Amazon's operation, um, uses many of, the, many of the services that AWS today have are derived from customers, and one of those customers is Amazon. So our fulfillment centers, which are our factories, if you will, is where we ship billions of uh, parcels um, and uh, do our production planning, do our workforce optimization, do our inventory planning, and so on and so forth. Um, all of that has certainly benefited us as it comes to translating that into services that we think AWS can provide. Because Amazon certainly pushes our, you know, the envelope on what AWS should be bringing to the table in that context. Uh, they're not our sole customer, obviously, and Vista is here to prove that. But there's, uh, they're, a good, they're a good customer of ours, uh, really pushing the envelope. Um, so what I'll, what I'll do uh, now is kind of walk you through um, what we've been doing the last, the last, I would say, 12 months. The manufacturing reference architecture, um, which we probably had the first version of uh, about a year and a half ago, I would say. Um, has now made it into uh, what it is today. Um, there's a number of revisions behind this. I realize it's not self-explanatory. Um, so in order to, uh, to help you kind of walk through that, there's a, there's a couple, of, um, couple of good items. You can, if you find me on LinkedIn, I just a couple of days ago posted um, a link to an interactive version of this where you can click every single icon and it will tell you what it is and what the context is about. Um, so you can do that or you can listen to a narrated version that will walk you through the entire end-to-end. -end. So on the left-hand side, we look at the factory uh, implementation of the relevant AWS services in context of a connected or sometimes disconnected uh, plant footprint or factory footprint. Um, and what types of services would be uh, relevant in that context in terms of getting data off of equipment or off of assets, pushing it to the cloud, uh, training uh, uh, a machine learning model against that data set, and then redistributing it out to the factory floor, even if we don't have always connectivity uh, in, that, in that situation or in that context. So the middle then is what do we do with the data once it comes off of the factory floor and all the services and capabilities, maybe integration points to existing processes, such as those in your ERP system or in your plant maintenance system, uh, wherever that may, uh, may be. Um, I think of critical importance as you think about the applying these types of technologies. Uh, a lot of it is about what we're talking about today, so AI or machine learning and the implementation of that. But it's, the, it's truly the automation, of, um, the automation of processes that are the critical piece. So if you think about, if you think about um, the left-hand side being your availability of your factory or, or your portfolio of your factories, you can answer that question now. It's like, hey, the availability is, um, you know, 98% of the time it's gonna be available for us to produce X. Uh, that's great, um, but against which, what, what's the demand? Well, I, I don't know. Whatever marketing says the demand is for our product. Uh, so we're seeing customers now tying, starting to tie services such as Amazon Forecast that you can see uh, kind of the, down on the left-hand side in the middle box to tie together the availability of the factory with what we believe 
uh, demand is for our products or set of products or mix of products and services. Um, the more fine-tuned you become and the more precise you become to understand availability of your plant portfolio or factory portfolio and your customer demand, um, you can start to automate some of the decision-making. So in our context, it is automating sourcing, for example, in Amazon's context. Uh, we have to. We don't have a choice because people order a lot of stuff on Amazon.com. So you can't, it can't be you know, Bob, Peggy, and Sue sending faxes and you know, whatever, right? or emails. It's, it's an automated. It has to be automated. We have to procure uh, that way. We have to do our workforce planning that way. We have to do our production planning that way. We have to do our inventory optimization that way. 100% automated. I'm not saying that you're going to be 100% automated, but if you think about, if you're using Amazon Forecast and you are you know, 95% of the time out of 100, you are correct in that forecast. If that's the case, how do I think about these processes and how do I start automating them? I'm not saying that you know, most companies are at the scale of what Amazon is, but they certainly can look at what I can automate. Uh, and what can, what can I learn from, uh, from, from that? So that's a super exciting area that we've seen um, a lot of customers now connecting the dots between. I have my smart factory, now optimized for, for the demand signal. You know, do people want to buy you know, 30 days out, 1,000 of X? And am I 95% uh, certain that that's going to happen? There's a lot of decision making that I can automate if I know that. Um, so food for thought. On the, on the right-hand side is now the, um, is where we have uh, connected products that I started uh, talking about. Um, this is an area that has been quite mature uh, for a while. Um, we have certainly you know, been, been around this space for, for, a, long, uh, for a long time, uh, both in the consumer space, uh, but also in the, uh, in the industrial space. I think what we've heard, though, loud and clear is this is great from a blueprint perspective. How, do different, how should I think about different AWS services? How do they relate? What about SAP? What about, Info, what about my ERP package and so on, or Maximo or whatever it is? Um, but at the end of the day, my time to value is still pretty steep. It takes a while to get there. Um, so this year has been about delivering on that uh, input from, from customers. Uh, so one of the first ones out was our machine to cloud connectivity framework. It's already in its second uh, iteration. It continues to be uh, worked upon. So think about this as the left-hand side of the MRA, the manufacturing reference architecture, right? The factory, how do I think about connectivity to uh, assets that speak funky languages and communicate over weird protocols? Uh, how do I take that and harmonize, harmonize that data stream and then push it into the cloud? That's what this does, and it's available as a cloud formation template that you can deploy through your uh, AWS console. Right? So that's number one. Number two, there's also a smart product solution. Um, that was um, pretty much deployed about a month ago. Um, so this is now the right-hand side of the MRA, where it just said, smart connected product or smart product. Uh, so how do I think about uh, that? And how do I think about the feedback loop of products in the field communicating back to the manufacturer how they are factually uh, performing? Right? 
that feeds back into R&D, that feeds back into sales and marketing, that feeds back into the service department that may have uh, an SLA against that asset, and so on and so forth. So, um, so this one is also available. Uh, a predictive maintenance uh, set of examples uh, for, or using machine learning for, for asset, uh, asset health is also available. Um, what did not make it, and I'm now coming back to uh, what I started saying, what did not make it uh, into this slide deck is probably one of the, one of the more exciting uh, things, uh, at least in my opinion. Uh, it's called Amazon Vir uh, Virtual Andon, or AVA. Um, so AVA is a, um, a, a resolution system, or ticket uh, resolution system um, for, um, uh, for Amazon that, that we used internally. So we have thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, Andon lights in any one fulfillment center. And what typically happens is uh, one of our coworkers will, let's say, uh, working at a packaging station, and uh, they're running out of medium-sized boxes. Right? So they pull, the, they pull the Andon cord or press a button, and it goes from green to orange. Uh, once it's orange, it shows up on, on somebody's dashboard, and uh, this, you know, a, a person, a maintenance guy, typically runs over to this station. It's like, hey, what do you need? Well, I'm running out of medium-sized boxes. Okay, let me go back to where I came from and get those medium-sized boxes, pick those up, uh, and then hand them over and problem solved. A um, couple of challenges with that. Number one is it was not documented what the problem was. This is a stupid example, medium-sized boxes, right? That was the challenge, I'm running out. It was not documented what the resolution was. The resolution was I went away and came back with medium-sized boxes. Again, stupid example. Um, and uh, so there's no data, there's no trace on what the problem was and how we solved it, right? So that's number one. Um, the turnaround time on average uh, is eight minutes. Uh, so that's quite a lot of, that's, that's a lot of time uh, to fixing something. Could be as simple as medium-sized boxes or something, uh, you know, something wrong with a, um, uh, with a computer vision system or, you know, could be, could be uh, significantly more complex. Uh, with this, Amazon Virtual Andon solution, which is uh, so cloud-based on, on AWS um, solution. Um, we have a little screen that now sits uh, at, the, at the workstation, um, and they will just hit material, medium-sized boxes, and then the person comes with medium-sized boxes. So, sounds pretty simple, and it is, right? So we just went from eight minutes average resolution time to two and a half uh, among a lot of thousands of employees in our fulfillment centers, that is a huge benefit and a huge saving. Um, it is available as a CloudFormation template as of about 10 days ago. Um, Tanner here from Invista is, uh, is uh, thankfully, thank you, uh, deploying that uh, within, their, uh, within their premises. Um, I've had another customer asking about, can we stretch out this uh, Andon system to cover also our suppliers? And to which I said, yes, of course, it's a cloud-based system, so of course you can tie in your entire uh, value chain if you, uh, if you so choose. Again, all of these are available as CloudFormation templates. You can deploy them within the uh, AWS uh, console, uh, and all of them are available today. So um, with that, I'm going to hand over to, uh, to Invista. All righty. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah. Awesome. Liz will take that for you. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
well, thank you for coming. Really excited to be here today and share our story. So um, I've been with Invista for nine years and since moved into our Coke Industries, our parent company, but was really passionate about coming back and telling the story um, for three main reasons. One, I think it's it's kind of a fun story, but two, when the AWS team asked us to, to share the story, I said yes, but I'm gonna share all the hard truths too. I don't wanna just share the good stuff. I wanna share some of the pains that we went through specifically because I hope that you can hear those pains and not have to go through them yourself. And then finally, I hope that you have some takeaways from this session today so that uh, maybe you can accelerate your path or um, at least prevent some of the hiccups that we fell, fell into. Okay. So Invista, um, most of you probably don't know our company. Um, we're not like Marshmallow where everybody knows our name. Um, thank you for the 5% of you that understood that. But um, <laughs> um, Invista really is a company that you likely use but don't know who we are. And um, that's mainly because we're an ingredient-based company and so B2B or business to business is our focus. And our products, though, go to everything from a fiber fill um, in your pillows and the Daycron brand uh, to even the carpets, the lush carpets under the, the floor um, that uh, is made from our Sane Master brand. Um, even the airbags in your cars uh, are 50% of the market is really covered by Invista's airbag fibers there. And then uh, last but not least, um, the polymers that surround many of the components of your car as well are made from our Nylon 6.6 uh, product. And, and this is really some heat resistance uh, type of polymer that can uh, surround the combustion engine or even the electric engines that are coming today. Um, so this varied use case is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenge in our production process because we have a lot of SKUs, uh, but gives us some opportunities as well because we are both the upstream and downstream for a lot of our, our business as well. Um, but this really gives us some opportunity within the production process and supply chain and in our logistics. Um, and I say opportunity as that's a challenge, a nice way for challenge. <laughs> Lots <laughs> and, of challenges. Yeah. <laughs> and we are a global company as well. So again, some extra challenges there, particularly in the inventory management side of things. Um, we have a pretty significant size organization, um, but really the best thing about being global in that sense is that we have talent that's global, we have suppliers that are global, um, we have customers that are global, and, uh, but yet it really does provide us with some, with some struggles as far as the inventory. So to give you a data point, inventory um, at Invista, one extra day of inventory for one of our products can be about a million dollars. Um, so we're, it's, it's good to keep it right, um, otherwise we're, we're, we're wasting that kind of money. So I promised I'd tell you the challenges that we went through and we'll kind of interweave these into our session today. Uh, but to kind of kickstart, I want to get you connected to the discomfort we had back in 2016. And the reason I really wanted to come back and, and present this is that, I mean, I lived this, right? Like this was our pain point. This is where we were. And so to share that little bit of um, pain, I'd like you to take a moment to um, imagine yourself as a senior leader at Invista back in 2016 with me. And so, you know, you're, you're back in 2016, you go into your office, you sit down at your computer, uh, you log in, you check your email, and you see a voicemail. That voicemail, the first one, you pick up your phone, and yes, it's a landline back in 2016, so you pick up your phone, and uh, the first voicemail is from a sales uh, agent. They're asking questions and, and uh, commenting about how there's a new software with artificial intelligence included, and you know, as a business leader back in 2016 at Invista, you likely think to yourself, well, I don't know what this sci-fi stuff that goes in my novels has anything to do with my business. So you delete that and you move on. Um, the next voicemail is from a customer and that customer is furious. 
their order is late, and it's affecting their ability to produce their product. Because again, we're ingredient-based, so we send out to the, the next um, downstream. And so it's affecting their ability to produce product, and you're finding that um, this is not the first time that you've affected that, and they've had some other production issues as well. So they're, they're gonna go out of business if you don't get that product to them soon. So you run out, you talk to your analyst, and you say, hey, where is this order? Why is it late? When's it gonna get there? And they look at you and say, yep, we're on it, but you know with our systems and everything's gonna take us at least half a day, if not a day, to get you those answers. Um, so there's like a little bit of anxiety that comes up in me because going back into that time, and so maybe you can feel some of that as well. But um, that's where we were. Data science wasn't commonly talked about. Artificial intelligence wasn't commonly talked about. We had way too many people focused on taking data out of our reporting systems, further analyzing it, putting it back into some way to visualize for a business leader to answer maybe one question. Um, it, the first time we tried to do data science, it took two months to get data. Two painful months. Two painful months <laughs> to get data out of one of our plant sites into the data scientist's hands. And then, once we did, there was one process engineer that understood the process and the data well enough to be able to even work with our data science team to get some insights from it. So, very, very painful. However, we were very good at transforming through large capital projects. Um, but that's all we really knew how to do. So we were kind of cursed by having that success and that we really didn't know how to transform using our data knowledge systems. So luckily, our, um, our top leadership had a focus on transformation within our organization. And so we kind of took that to heart within the analytics world and said, okay, what can we do that's really gonna help us transform? And eventually we came with this vision for a better state. And we focused on the people, the process, and technologies you hear a lot about in manufacturing. But we really wanted to make sure that we transformed our workforce. That was a really big piece for us. We wanted to get the right data in the right hands for people to take action. Um, and that, that was a really big focus for us. And um, abstracting and decoupling our architecture was huge. We had a behemoth system that took a long time to get any insights from, and it was, it was a pretty big struggle for us. So I'll say that um, We've come a long ways in this. We're not perfect by any means. We still have a long ways to We're go. Still on that journey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but really, the main thing I'll say that we really wanted to do was get people connected to using this data as they did in their personal lives. So for me, before I walk out the door, I ask Alexa if it's, what the weather's going to be like. And if she tells me it's going to rain, I grab an umbrella. If she tells me it's um, going to be sunny, I grab sunscreen. And we wanted that same kind of quick interaction to exist within um, our operation sites as well. So how do we get that habit forming in our, in our organization? Um, and so we, we've come a long ways. We see some really good indicators that we're on the right path. Some of those being that um, artificial intelligence or data science is actually ingrained in the strategies of our supply chain, our operations, and our digital marketing, all of those um, leadership level strategies. We, um, it now takes uh, hours, maybe even minutes, to get Caleb and the data science team uh, data from um, our plant sites. We even have Alexa devices that um, are used at some of our sites as well and getting data within minutes additionally. Um, we additionally have uh, business leaders that can use visualization dashboards that they can look at insights from their, uh, their orders and where, where all of their orders are tracking to so they can have proactive communication with um, customers and even some portals to our customers as well. All right, so I'll tell you how we got there. And um, to begin with, 
you know, if I would have taken to my senior leaders and described to them this awesome serverless architecture that they would have wanted, they would have looked at me and said, that's great, Liz, I trust you, but I really don't understand how this serverless architecture make, allows us to make better product or gets us back to the producing and manufacturing what we do. And so I started thinking, how do we really get them connected to the pain points and the discomfort I had? And really, benchmarking ourselves was a great way to do that. So we benchmarked ourselves against the Gartner hype cycle, for those not connected to this. This is the Gartner hype cycle, and it kind of shows how technology moves through um, uh, over time. And we were really sitting back in this. Everything was kind of in that innovation stage for us. We were very early on in, in 2017. Um, and when we really looked at the where we were, we found that we were actually aligned with the analytics, um, or we were behind with the analytics maturity, but we are in line with the manufacturing side of things at the time. And so we kind of felt good about that, but also still felt like we were a bit behind. And so we started moving. We started moving pretty quick um, through this hype cycle, but then something still didn't feel right. We moved pretty um, quick once, but if we just moved once, that wasn't really getting us where we needed to because more, pro more things were coming at us um, from the tail end every day. And so we started to focus on how do we really transform our organization and move more efficiently through this hype cycle with any technology that's coming our way, not just one big shift. Um, and that's really what drove more of our workforce uh, emphasis and our vision versus just a technology uh, change and shift over. Yeah, it's those three areas, the people, process, and technology, and that's really what has helped us continue that drive. Yeah, and so we found ourselves, um, I mean, really focusing on time as that most valuable non-renewable asset. And so, um, again, decreasing that inflated expectations was a big focus of ours. If we got people connected truly to what these new technologies were and what was coming, then uh, we would, would go uh, and have a less steep uh, peak there, and then also that would give us the shortened disillusionment. And again, getting us to that productivity and enlightenment. Um, we had a hypothesis that as a chemical and fiber manufacturing uh, company, if we knew how to empower this AI across the organization, we could move more quickly through this and that would enable us to have a competitive advantage um, in our market and also become more of a preferred supplier for our customers. We saw Amazon winning in a lot of retail analytics. We saw Google winning in a lot of um, uh, internet analytics. We saw Facebook winning and a lot of social analytics. We really wanted Invista to start winning a bit in the manufacturing analytics side. And I'll say one good um, indicator we're on the right path is natural language processing. We recently did some of our first experiments with that. And now we see many uh, business leaders understanding when NLP should be put into place and how to actually um, utilize it to, to bring profits to Invista. Yeah, and so those guiding concepts, what actually got us here? Um, I like to to talk about experience recently I had a, a, a church event. A young man came up to me and he said, Caleb, what do you actually do as a data scientist? And in my past lives, I used to start out with, you know, we take the cool mathematical functions of nature and we reduce those down into less complex mathematical functions and then we try and reduce uncertainty and we apply that to business. Uh, shortly after that, he uh, understood that I was not wearing a white lab coat pouring test tubes of data back and forth, and I could see the disappointment in his face. Um, however, one thing we do share with our white lab coat-toting brethren is the scientific method. And this was 
a, a key concept for us as, as we took this journey and are still on this journey. Because we observed problems. We hypothesized. We tested and collected data. We analyzed the results and then observed new hypotheses, um, observed new things and then hypothesized again. We observed that we had bad partners. We hypothesized that if we could get better partners, we'd have more flexibility and quicker time to action. We observed that our old architecture and vendors were holding us back. We were trying to innovate faster than they could help. And so we said, well, if we can create an architecture that decouples each piece, then whenever a new vendor comes in that's more optimal, we'll just replace them, right? Um, we observed that our organization was behind the times in analytics learning. But we hypothesized that if we set up learning pathways for our employees and our colleagues, that they would self-actualize. They would go out and bring themselves up to speed. So these are the, the three areas that we're, we're going to focus on, these three hypotheses. Um, but oftentimes, people ask, what, uh, there's that famous old saying, something like, uh, a journey of 1,000 miles begins with one step, so watch your step. Um, so the real question is, is, what was that first step? And the first step we took was to hide the scientific method. Um, apparently, people don't like uh, the fifth grade science class where they learned it. And so we decided to take a useful thing from agile user stories and combine it with XYZ value stories. So you can see an example of one here on the screen. Um, it's as a blank, if I knew X, then I would Y resulting in Z. And we found that that really helps people um, set up the scientific method really easy and makes them feel more confident that they can do things that they would classify as being scary. Um, I, the scientific method doesn't seem scary to me, but yeah, sometimes it is, right? And so how do we do that? And so with this young man at this church event, you know, I went back and I, I was like, well, let me explain what we actually do, right? It's really cool what we can do. And so that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to talk about some examples from the manufacturing space to really help you understand what we mean by data science and artificial intelligence. Um, these are, are specifically in the manufacturing space. Um, we have asset performance where the XYZ statement was, if I knew when a pump was going to fail, I would intervene proactively or bring it down just in time, resulting in higher uptime and less lost capital. This is key because a major pump failure at a manufacturing site um, can reduce our, our production rates drastically. Even if we have backup pumps, uh, there's time lost. And so we, we've got to focus on that, especially being in the chemical industry, to help understand when that's going to come down. In the working capital space, the question was, if I knew when I was going to use spare parts, I would stock just the right amount, resulting in optimized inventory levels. Liz mentioned earlier that a single day of working capital is about a million dollars at Invista. So every time we can reduce that, we can get great gains. And this one was a really fun one. And actually, one of those that we kind of closed the loop for the first time of full automation. And so what happens in this working capital is the algorithm lets us know when we should reorder different um, spare parts. And then it automatically feeds into our ERP system to order at the right time and then optimize over time. And so we've really taken the human out of the loop in that one um, and been able to see that optimization start to occur over the next um, last six months and continue on forward. So and that one's been a really fun one to experiment on. The first three months it was in production, it saved us about $400,000. And so it was uh, a good win for us. And it's one of the exciting ones that we have on our our statements here. Uh, in another space, we've got quality. And because a lot of our products go into life-saving devices like airbags, we have high quality standards. Um, 
So one of the XYZ statements here is if I, I could identify defective bobbins through automated visual inspection, I would correctly classify these defects, resulting in improved quality classifications, and that leads back to how can I optimize this machine? And a little bit of backstory there, we have 10,000 items that pass by inspectors a day. And so you can imagine taking a flashlight and looking at the face of a big spool of yarn and doing that for four to five hours at a time. Humans aren't the best at being consistent. We're really good thought generators and decision makers, but if you put someone in front of a bobbin for four hours at a time, at the end of their shift, they get tired, they get drowsy, they get distracted. And when we talk about life-saving devices, we can't have um, these type of defects entering our systems. And so one of the things we're trying to do is have a camera identify most of the defects. And then the hard ones go to a human inspector. So if the machine doesn't know, hey, this is that downgrade, we put it off to the side. And a, a person now, instead of 10,000 bobbins, they can look at you know, 400 a day. And you can split that up between multiple people. And so the workload is, is drastically increased. Yeah, I'd say for, for quality product there is the big thing. So it was our main focus was to bring up the first quality yield, um, which allowed it to go into the airbag industry. Otherwise, we had to downgrade the product. And so that's been able to improve uh, pretty significantly in, in a portion of our organization. Again, scalability is now something that we're focusing on a little bit more. Yeah. And like Liz was mentioning earlier, we have a lot of upstream sites that feed our downstream plants. And so this second example is in, in that case. So what key variables, if I knew what key variables affected my downstream production, then I would change those variables to optimize uh, the return on investment, resulting in proved first pass quality. And this is key because we've been given a, a quantity of resources that we purchase from the market, and we are expected to be good stewards. And so this is a way that we can uh, improve that quality pass and be good stewards with what we've been given. Yeah, and this one too, I think was the first time that we got real global with our analysis as well. And so when we started bringing data over from overseas and, and the Asia Pacific region and the data scientists that sat here within North America, for them to be able to access and analyze that data with the engineers there in the local site at the same time was a big emphasis on why the architecture you'll see that we've used was such, so powerful for organization. Yeah, so we've given you a lot of background of, of sort of who Invista is, and some examples of data science and what we classify as artificial intelligence and machine learning. Now we're going to get into those three hypotheses that we mentioned. And we're going to walk through what those were. So the first of those is preferred partnerships. Um, Jim Collins, he's a famous uh, business writer. He has a concept of getting everyone on the bus, getting everyone on the team that you need so that you can achieve success. We found that on top of that in the analytics space, you also need to get people aware that the bus exists. For example, the bus's maintenance man or the infrastructure builders um, so that the bus can travel down the road fast. We, we found all of these things. But in the analytics world, these examples are analytics champions uh, who know enough to say, hey, you should call the data science team. Or these are leadership that can remove barricades as the bus travels down the road um, to value creation. Or, this is the cloud infrastructure team that's building the solutions that analytics is running on. You need all of these people working together to really get that preferred partnership. Um, at Coke and in Vista, we call this virtuous cycles of mutual benefit. And what I've been talking about right now has been mostly in that internal bucket, right? Getting everyone in line internally. But on top of that, we feel that other groups need to be aware of the bus's goals and objectives. 
And so in the customer bucket, we believe that everyone's going to have to take a page from Amazon and become customer obsessed. If you're not customer obsessed and trying to figure out how you can benefit your customer, you're not a preferred partner, and they're probably going to go away sooner or later. Um, on the flip side, we all have suppliers. Unfortunately, there's this horrible, uh, this horrible study called economics that, meet, that says you can't be the best at everything. Um, and they've done a lot of tests on it, and no one's disproved that yet. And so you're going to need suppliers, and you're going to need them to be aligned with where you're going and how you're doing it. On top of that, we have customers that are global. So that means we have to have suppliers that are global. So what else does that mean? Well, talent is globally dispersed. It's a, it's a truth, right? There's no one place that has all the talent in the world. So how can we get more of the talent that we need? Because it's not likely that you, we all can hire 50 data scientists or ML engineers or data engineers and get them all working on the same thing. Because the capital would be immense, and you may not need them all the time. Right? So one thing we've been doing is testing out gig economies, both internally to Coke, so finding people who have skills and knowledge and would like to work on a different thing for a little bit inside of our own industry, and hiring out um, to third parties that have domain knowledge. It, it's really um, a tragedy, but knowledge networks are really your only constraint to getting the best talent of the world. Um, and you can hire some of the most genius data scientists for a day, an hour, et cetera. And so that's one thing that we've been leveraging. And AWS, I believe, just released uh, the ability to um, connect into the certified um, practitioners as well, um, and architects in a similar kind of gig economy um, prospect. So we haven't experimented with that yet, but I'm sure we will. Yeah. And so one place that really caused us a lot of pain on this journey was the suppliers. Um, in the first place, our old suppliers, we had vendor lock-in. We had these massive multi-year contracts where incentives really weren't aligned. They would say, hey, you know, we're going to lock you into six years, and here's the analytics tool you're going to use. We found that a preferred supplier is usage-based. You shouldn't be afraid I'm going to leave your tool. Your tool should be so good that you're OK with me having the option to leave whenever I want. And that's one of the hypotheses that we had is preferred partners will be usage-based. You know, subscription-based, maybe it's a monthly fee, but that we can have the best incentive alignment of both working together and getting the tools and services that we need. Um, roadmap availability was actually something that sort of bit us hard um, because we have limited finite resources. And so we were working with one of our older vendors at the time, and they were trying to push this product onto us. And we didn't really feel comfortable, and in the end, we didn't go with it. But a month later, they came out with the exact product that answered the question uh, that we were trying to solve. And if they would have told us that, we would have waited a month and, and got signed up for that product. But we felt sort of betrayed because they didn't even tell us until the day it was released that it was coming out. And so preferred partners like AWS will give you advance notice so you can work on the important things that are specific to your industry and let them work on the other stuff. A great example of this is Amazon SageMaker. They keep coming out with great things to help data scientists, um, and they keep adding to it. And they'll tell you in advance, hey, this is where we're going, so you can be aligned. Um, we found that integration to and from any services is key. If, if someone says, hey, we're going to lock your data up, and you have to pay us every time you pull it out, that's not a win-win. right? Why are you so scared that I'm going to pull my data back out of your system? And we found, again, no one's good at everything. And so having the ability to use the tool and pull it in and out and find that person who's really optimal is key here. 
And then the last area is security. And oftentimes they talk about data as being a very valuable asset. And when we bring suppliers and vendors in, we're exposing a lot of our asset to them. And so who has access to that? How are they controlling it? Are they reactionary? Or are they proactively giving us security um, that helps us along our pathway? So these are, are some of the key things that we've found in, in helping identify a good supplier. Now, once you have the suppliers, we really found that our architecture was getting in the way of, of learning. And so we found that there's no good vendor in all of analytics. Um, but we found that there was some really good ones in some areas. So we hypothesized that if we could put a good base infrastructure in, we could plug and play and get that optimized use case. Um, one of the things that we also found out is there's no way to get away from coding. Um, at some point, your process is going to be specific to your industry, and so you will have to code. And we don't want our data scientists recoding a lot. So we actually generated a repository to help with that code. And it, it contains building blocks that vendors haven't come up with yet. And when they come up with them, we'll switch, right? Because they have the optimized version. Um, but we don't want that to get in the way of our progress and success. So the real challenge here was how can we build an infrastructure that is good for data workflows, moving data back and forth, but also is good for data science workflows, and how we can integrate that together. This is what our old architecture looked like. Um, so we had a whole bunch of sensors, plants, stuff coming from our ERP system, and we'd pull that into the data warehouse, and then we'd do analysis off the back end, um, and it was miserable. If, if I go back, I can count how many people it took. So you had an R&D engineer, a corporate engineer, a local site IT, the corporate IT owner, data governance, data engineer, data architect, and if, heaven forbid, risk and compliance had to get involved, because that would take a long time. And so it was about 10 people that you had to talk to to get data out of something like this. And it, it took two months, like Liz was mentioning. If, if that doesn't kill joy to experiment, I don't know what does. So what we, we decided to do was, let's try and, and pull, ask for the data once, and we're going to put it all in the data lake. And then we have this virtualization layer at the end, which allows us to reach back into all of the systems behind. And what that allows us to do is our data engineer engineering team can optimize the data lake and the data warehouse. They can optimize the connections into these uh, desperate sources on this end. But our data science team and analytics teams and customers can reach back into any of those systems with that virtualization layer. And they don't even have to know it exists. That our engineering team can optimize something one day, and it won't change the functionality past that virtualization layer. Um, and then from there, our data science platforms can uh, pull them out. We can give API access to vendors. And if they can't connect via API, they're probably not a preferred partner. Right? If I have to put your software at every plant um, and keep up with the versions and everything, it, it's probably not going to work out. It causes a lot of headaches. So that's one of those things that's API access. And so this sort of shows some of the things we're using in this process. Um, and so you have Snowball and agents dumping everything into our S3 data lake. It's at about 290 billion rows of data coming off of our sites today. Um, and then we have you know, Snowflake and Redshift for that heavy lifting for the warehouse. Um, and then uh, we use Denoto as that virtualization layer. And then we can feed all of those services um, on the back end. And there's some examples of some of the stuff we feed from that data lake. Can I say Snowball was one of the biggest um, finds for us and that we had 
10, 15 years worth of data and very granular data sitting at our plant sites that we were struggling to get an analysis done on that. And I mean, you could forget about comparison between our plant sites when it was sitting at one site itself. And so getting that into a central location so we could, one, compare and contrast versus maybe a, a plant that's doing better to one that's maybe struggling a little bit, that was a huge unlock for us. Um, and, and being able to move so much data uh, to one location and be able to, to get to that yeah. analysis. It's completely enabled us to do those things. Like two hours later, I can have a call with our, our Asia Pacific plants and I can have the data that they were looking at. And our data science team can be up to speed and we can pull that in quickly. Whereas it used to take months and that's just a sad, sad commentary. Mm -hmm. So one thing we like to do is, is pull comparisons from, from the real world to other things in the real world. And so, Invista is a chemical manufacturing plant. Um, we take these raw materials and we transform them into a value-added substance. We can look at data pipelines as exactly the same thing. So we take raw data from our sites and sensors and we pull them into the data lake and we transform them and manipulate them and produce a data product that is better on the other end. Now, a question when we talk about infrastructure and architectures, um, another comparison we can do is, in the manufacturing space, lights out facility are all the rage, right? We don't want anyone to touch it, right? But the question to be asked is, is your data pipeline a lights out manufacturing facility? Or do you have someone, we can name him Bob, running from one end to the architecture to the other, trying to keep that thing alive every time you get a new data source? And we found it key that our arch architecture had to be so abstract that when we put in new data, it doesn't break it. And it can robustly take in any data source that we need. Now, we found that even with this awesome architecture, which our engineering team and architects have done an amazing job, I, brings tears of joy uh, every time I can get data in two hours. Um, they've done amazing. But we found that the old saying of build it and they will come does not apply to data architectures, at least in the first part. We found that we had to give training and help people understand what they had. And that led us to understand that we needed this talent evolution. Absolutely. So we're going to get to the people side of, of all of this. And sometimes this falls to the wayside to the technology and, and some of the process side. But for us, we felt like it was extremely valuable. Um, I mean, mainly we felt like, what could we do to get more value from our data assets? And we, we found that we, we were, needed to unlock some curiosity in our talent. They had previously been curious, most of us are as kids, but somehow we just lose that over time. And um, we found that that existed within our talent uh, at Invista as well. I mean, architecture is very important and we had that piece down. We had um, some preferred suppliers now that we were using, but, but how do we really change that talent? And uh, many people were spending a lot of time trying to figure out what to learn next. And so we decided we needed to improve our rate of profitable learning. Um, so I don't know about you, but I know I've gone on learning platforms and wasted hours watching videos. And then, well, I'm not sure why I watched that one. So we were trying to figure out how do we streamline that for our talent. So we started going with intentional, repeatable learning pathways. Now, these weren't a one-size-fits-all, but this was really focused on how do we give somebody what's next in their, in their phase of learning to move up through this maturity model of analytics and, and can be an automation as well. So 
I mean, we do find reporting is, is sometimes easy, and even imputing data can be easy. Now, he may argue with me on that every once in a while, but, yeah. um, but really getting the mindset to take the data and, and, and get insights from it, that was hard, and it was really kind of hard to teach into people, and so we wanted to give them phases that allowed them to have a pathway that worked for them. And so 80% of our organization, we believe, fat, fit in this basic um, bottom layer. And we believe it will shift as the industry shifts and as we move um, both in the analytics world and also in the manufacturing world. But to begin with, 80% of our organization flowing through these first four um, kind of sessions or workshops or varied learnings. So first, starting with data visualization. So get people out of thinking about the rows and columns and trying to go through their eyes and look at all of that, that information and start them looking at data in a visual format. Um, our eyes as humans are able to find trends and exceptions in visualizations much easier than we are in row and format column. Um, and a lot of times this was really just like Power BI trainings or something basic like that. And then we went into analytics fluency, and this was really to try to get our stakeholders connected to some of those buzzwords that exist in the industry. So what is artificial intelligence? What is machine learning? What is data science? How do those matter to our business? How do they matter to the manufacturing space? How do they matter to supply chain? Those kind of things. And so that helped kind of unlock that idea and get, allow them to uh, debunk some of the, the buzzwords that were existing and kind of getting thrown at them by a variety of sales pitches and other things as well. But then next, we did the XYZ value story workshops. And this is a little bit of what you saw some of the outcome of earlier. But the main thing here was this is helping people dream. They, now they had the base of what analytics and automation was. They knew the domain knowledge that they had coming in. And so it was kind of bringing it together and saying, all right, let's, let's dream of the impossible and, and kind of make it happen. So you know the famous quote that's, you know, the future is unknowable, but it's not unimaginable. And so we really focused people in, in half day or full day workshops to try to get to that. And, and um, as Caleb likes to do the impossible, we, uh, we tried to encourage that too. And this is really where we came up with some of our most valuable projects, was just really getting people to realize this is here now. The compute power is here. The um, statistical analysis is here. We had internal talent that could help us. We had a gig economy to go flex with our organization if we needed to. We could make these things happen, and, and so we started doing so. And then the analytics boot camp, that was the final one in this basic training. And this is where we got people thinking really about how to apply this kind of decision making with data. So how to augment our human behavior and, and think about where do we have decision traps we're falling into and how can we use analysis to help us mitigate some of those, those traps that we fall into as, as humans. And this is where we started teaching people how to tell story with data. Because we had so many places where really good analysts or, or engineers or a variety of people had a great analysis, but they struggled to articulate the value of that back to their business, so action wasn't getting taken. So we started upskilling our organization in that phase as well. Really got them thinking about problem solving and how to be that analytics translator that you now see in the market. But then we had a few people that really wanted to go to that next step. And so we wanted to keep that talent for one, and we wanted to give them a little bit of a curriculum that enabled them to move forward um, in, in a structured way that kind of hit our culture, but also the data-driven decision-making that we are wanting. And so this is where we started introducing more of that cloud fluency training. So got them connected to that serverless architecture mindset as well. That partnered with the analytics mindset was a really powerful tool, for, particularly for some of our more advanced analysts. 
Um, and then data exploration training. This is where we use tools like Alteryx or a variety of other tools that enabled our workforce to start merging variety of tools or data sets together, particularly when they had different um, granularities in their data and got them thinking a little bit more in that complex manner. And then citizen data science training. This is where we really started getting into the um, different algorithms, layered on some coding skills, uh, got people connected to the pros and cons of different models so that they knew what they were getting into when they were using some of the, the more uh, complex tools and, and functionality of some of the tools we had at our fingertips. So again, less people focused in those, but the few people that we did have go to those next steps started unlocking their ability across our organization, particularly because they had the domain knowledge as well. And it's really key because normally data scientist team can't do it all. And so you have these wonderful subject matter experts that know so much, and we found that through these trainings, we can unlock that knowledge. And they can come ask for help if they need it. But we can let them go because we've given them those trainings and understandings that we know they won't wreak havoc, and they will create value for us. And so we found that very valuable. Yep. And we're still scaling these today, but we've done a lot of experimentation to find that these work. Um, we had some pain points as well along the way that uh, it discouraged us from using some maybe uh, more traditional online uh, programs to more um, in-classroom combined with online trainings to kind of bring it all together um, that, that really is, has made it more powerful. But then last but not least is the data science competency. So this is another place we had some data scientists that came into our organization. They were great, but then we were seeing some attrition starting to occur there and we wondered why. And we found out that it was because they were kind of capping out and they didn't, nothing was really pushing them to that next level. Um, and so we really wanted to think about how do we have an understanding of what's next for our data scientists as well. And so we started focusing not only on the onboarding, so we had some consistency in the data scientists coming into our house, but also that we had some um, understanding in a matrix that allowed them to see what they were really good at and maybe where they had some areas to improve. And then some guided discussions and, and sessions and learnings that allowed them to improve upon those areas. Um, I think one of the neat things that um, I think Caleb really brought to the picture here was uh, being able to compare and contrast between data scientists was really interesting so you would know who to go to when you had some questions maybe on a specific forecasting model um, versus maybe a predictive uh, maintenance model. Yeah, that, that framework Liz is talking about helps us understand what data scientists are good at and where they have weaknesses because no one's good at everything. So we can say, hey, this person's great at this, go talk to them about you know, forecasting models and it's really empowered our team to say, hey, you're really good at documentation. Let's, let's get that going better in our team. See what people are good at. Yep. All right, so we've gone through quite a few things. I bet some of you are actually thinking, okay, so wait, what happened to that customer you were talking about at the very beginning? Well, thankfully, they did not go out of business. They're one of our preferred customers and we're one of their preferred suppliers now and mainly because we, really ex we, we accepted we were not doing well and we needed to um, better partner with them. And so we developed out some ways to give them more proactive notice of when their orders were gonna be late. We gave them collaboration channels that were um, connecting on our data that allowed them to see what was happening more within our processes. And I'm sure they're gonna be one of the first customers to experiment with us uh, when we start getting into some recommendation systems. So I'll tell if you take anything away from this session, I hope you do take away that um, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And um, I just really wanna encourage you to slow down sometimes to ensure that you're getting um, the right partners uh, with you when you're going through this AI journey. There's a lot of technologies out there and a lot of suppliers that are, are putting that buzzword in there. Um, but being really careful that they have a win-win situation um, at heart as well. 
Uh, and then uh, making sure you don't lock into some behemoth architecture. Uh, that was the big thing for us. The data was a strategic asset, and we really like to be able to flex when we need to and um, take on some uh, marginal value where there is a new tool that comes out to the market. And as you saw, Michelle um, showed some new uh, solutions that we're definitely going to plug into our architecture uh, that he released here today. And then finally, I would say if you could do anything, ensure that uh, the mindset and the skill set is focused on your leaders and also um, your practitioners, not just the tool set training, because that will really unlock um, that value across your organization. So I'll ask a couple questions. Maybe think about for you, where could you apply the scientific method to your people, process, and technology? Maybe where can you find yourself um, to be a better preferred supplier or preferred customer for those partners that you have? I really think that if you answer those two questions, you can walk out of here um, on, a, on a really good path to creating more value for yourself, for your company, and for society as well. With that, thank you.